Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Uh, we're going to read the scripture for today's teaching now. It's on the screen. If you have your Bible, feel free to follow along. It's from Mark 7, 24 through 37. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, oh wow, big word, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looked up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. There you go. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, But my deepest hope for us as a community is that we'd be a community following Jesus and that Jesus would be the thing that orients um, who we are, that we would be embracing his ways and um, figuring out the heart of God. What is the heart of God and how do we lean into that so that we can love our neighbors and then we can love God? And so I know the last couple of days um, have been a lot and I actually do want to speak to um, some of what happened on Friday and I want to pray, but I'm going to save that all for the end of the sermon today because I really think that if we allow this passage um, to shape us, to mold us, to form us into its likeness, um, what it can actually do is shape our imagination. And this is why we go through the Gospel of Mark is because it's a story, and nothing better than story shapes us. I can give you ideas, but stories shape our hearts. And so, yes, we're going to get some information in our heads today. Not my goal. My goal is that we could be a community that's trying to figure out how is Jesus speaking to our hearts, what is he telling us to do, and how do we respond to that? All right? Let's pray, and then uh, we'll get into this text. 
And so, Father, um, thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, this uh, growing community that, um, that you're leading and we're just seeking after what you're doing. God, I believe that you are a missional God, meaning that you go before us, you have a plan, you have a way, and our response is always saying, God, what are you doing and how can we catch up to you? And so, God, um, may your spirit be uh, in our midst. Um, I pray even now for myself, uh, for the limitations as I come um, to your word that um, I'm drawn um, in humility um, to this text in so many different ways. And I just pray that what people would leave here um, saying is that they know your son Jesus a little bit more today because they've bumped into you into the text. And so, God, would you be in our midst? Would we bring all of ourselves and would you shape us by your grace? It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so who grew up with the old admonition, before you judge someone, walk a mile in their shoes? Anybody? Okay, good. I was like, I'm afraid I'm going to be alone. Like I was just like a judgmental kid or something, and my parents told me that all the time. But this, this old saying was simply to root us, right? Before you make a conclusion about a person, at least attempt to understand their experiences, their challenges, their thought processes that they hold. And what I want to submit to you this morning is that this is actually growing increasingly challenging, that this type of uh, ideology is growing increasingly challenging. Maybe if we boiled this down, we might go as far to say that empathy is getting harder, right? A widening political divide, uh, a mistrust, a further mistrust of our own neighbors. Um, for many of us, our workplaces have become a place of a lack of presence and vulnerability, and so we don't see people as much, and so I think in some ways it grows to the, to the divide of, of our empathy. And so even the idea, before you judge someone, walk a mile in, the sh in, in their shoes, is an acknowledgement of our own expressive individualism. Right, our, our own desire to be an autonomous person, an autonomous whole, and when we focus on ourselves, we know this intuitively, when we focus on ourselves, our worlds get smaller. It's just true. That, that type of expressive individualism actually closed down our world, our world shrinks as we turn inward. But, and I want to I focus on this word today, as we focus on others, what happens is that our world begins to expand. And so let's push into this text this morning, Mark chapter 7. Um, if you have your phone, it would be a great thing to follow along. I really want to focus on the first uh, part of it. And last week, we looked at the, um, uh, the first part of Mark chapter 7. And what we found in the first 23 verses is that Jesus was actually pretty harsh. Jesus was very harsh to the religious leaders of the day. And in the passage, um, what we really came to last week was how, do, how is it that we relate to God? How do we relate to God? And the Pharisees, what they did is they put rules on top of rules on top of rules to prove to God, I'm holy, I'm clean, I'm perfect, and so God, you have to accept me. And so in these first 23 verses, you get this idea of who's out, and Jesus says the Pharisees are out. They don't get it. And it's almost as if the passage just stops, and it's kind of confusing. You're like, what, what's, like, who's in? Like, where, where, where's the good news in this? As he shares in 23 verses, who's out? And then what begins to happen is you look at the passage and you say, I don't get it. Like, the religious elite of the day. Like, I was thinking about this this week. I'm like, wow, I have like a degree, like seminary trained. I'm, I think this is, I think he's talking about me. Oh no, you know, who's out? Verses 1 through 23. And what what the, uh, the writer Mark is dealing with in the next uh, set of verses is who's in. 
And so there's this like dichotomy being built between who's out and who's in. And this is what was even said of the religious leaders. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And so who's out? The pious, the tradition-keeping, rule-following Pharisees. But then there's these two. There's these two in the passage that approach Jesus differently, and they get it. And specifically, one woman comes confident. She's the most unlikely person. I'm going to show you that today. But she gets who Jesus is, and she gets what Jesus came to do. So I want to answer the question today, how should we approach God? How do we approach God? I'm going to hang our hats on three words today. The first one I got to teach you, um, it's like dumb academic word, but it'll be a worthy endeavor for us. It's called alterity. And then we'll talk about inclusivity, and then we'll talk about exclusivity. So alterity, inclusivity, and exclusivity. And so we'll begin in verse 24. It says this, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So let's just let's, let's leave this up for a second. Let's pause here and break this down. Jesus has been predominantly in a Jewish territory, this Jewish region, and then he's, made his, he's left this predominantly Jewish region, and he's made his way to a place called Tyre in Sidon. Tyre is a uh, coastal town, modern-day Lebanon, right along the Sea of Galilee. And just a side note here, when you're reading your Bible and you're like, I don't understand all these locations, what they mean, like why, why they're important, Google it. Figure out where they are and why Jesus moved from regions to regions, because different cities contain different values, different people, and the author is not just telling you this for fun, right? There's a purpose behind what the author is trying to communicate, and what the author is trying to communicate is a context, right? You know that Williamsburg is different than the Upper East Side, right? You know that the Upper West Side is different than Poughkeepsie. There's different cultural values, different people live in these neighborhoods, and so when you read these things, Google them, you can figure them out. But Tyre and Sidon, Sidon modern-day Lebanon, and what the text is, is showing us is that Jesus actually is trying to get away. He, this is a repeated pattern in his life and ministry. He's trying to get away. He's trying to rest. And I think it's gotten so difficult for him to do this up until this point that he actually goes out of the Jewish region completely into a predominantly Gentile territory, Gentile meaning non-Jew. And so it continues on in verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Okay, here it is. Direct contrast, right? Who's in, I mean, who's out and who's in, right? The, the Pharisees were Jewish, they were men, they were rule followers, and they were clean. Right? They were set apart from anything dirty, and they were going to make themselves whole without, um, without following Jesus. Like They were going to be clean. And then here's this Gentile woman, right? A Greek, probably worships Greek gods. Therefore, in Jewish eyes, she would be considered a pagan. She's a woman, and her daughter has an unclean spirit, unclean in every sense. So what Mark is trying to do here is he's saying, here's the Pharisees. This woman is on the other end of the spectrum, like completely farthest apart that you could ever imagine. And then don't forget this little thing in there. She's a mom, right? And what is greater than a mom advocating for her child? Like nothing more hopeful and amazing than a mom advocating for her child. And so in this story... What Jesus is doing is he's crossing every boundary imaginable, 
geographical boundaries, religious boundaries, ethnic boundaries, gender boundaries, theological boundaries, and this is Jesus. Jesus is the border-crossing and boundary-crossing God. That, that's who he is, and what, what we could maybe call this is like the great inversion, right? God has reversed the positions of insiders and outsiders. Like, this is the great inversion of this text. Those in positions of authority and privilege reject Jesus and his message. Even Jesus' own disciples are slow to understanding. The writers are always trying to get us to see, man, those disciples, they just can't get it. But then look who gets it. The low and the despised of, in social position in first century Jewish culture. What do they do? They receive the gospel gladly. They get it. They're humbled, the lepers, the demon-possessed. Uh, there's a woman in chapter 5 of Mark with the bleeding children. Later on when we get into Mark, you know, in like 2025, the centurion on the cross in chapter 15. Mark goes so far in chapter 10 to say this, or Jesus says this, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What did they understand that the Pharisees didn't? What do they have? What do they possess that we could actually grasp onto so we can understand how is it that we actually approach God so we know, God, I'm sure of your love and care and provision for me? I think it's that they understood their need and then they humbly approached Jesus. They understood who they were and differentiated that from the perfectness of who God is. And so think about it this way. You ever thought about um, in the Gospels, why why does Jesus go to Galilee? Like, I don't know if you've ever, ever read anything about Galilee, but like, it is not the centrum of power. The centrum of power of the day would have been like um, Alexandria or Athens or Rome. Like, to me, if you're going to conceive of a strategy of telling people uh, what Matthew says is good news of great joy, you go to the center of power, right? You go to the New Yorks. You don't go to West Virginia or the Poconos or whatever it is. Like, I don't know, I don't know the exact parallel. You don't go there, Right? Galilee isn't a religious or an intellectual center of the day. Jesus probably should have gone to Jerusalem as a Jew. That, that would actually make sense that he would do that, but he didn't. And scholars pretty much universally agree that Galilee was on the margins. Geographically, economically, politically, religiously, um, Galilee would have been home to simple, hardworking people, marginalized, oppressed, left out, on the fringes, exploited but this is Jesus, like through and through, this is Jesus. And I hope, that this, um, I hope that this understanding of Jesus sort of undergirds your theology, that begins to undergird how you think about life, um, what does it look like to follow Jesus in 2022? I hope that this would undergird it, that Jesus isn't content to just stand with people on the margins, right? He didn't just go and advocate and hold up a sign, but Jesus actually joined the people on the margins, joining their community, living in their midst. And what we find in Jesus of Nazareth is God intentionally on the margins. And so, here's a word I want to teach you today, alterity. It'll be on the screen here. The word alterity means the quality or state of being radically alien to the conscious self or a particular cultural orientation, or it can simply mean otherness, okay? The quality or state of being radically alien to the conscious self. So it's saying this, I am a self, and alterity means that which is completely different than me. And it means otherness. Now, a lot of times people say this, um, social psychologists will use this phrase in a bad way to say that we need to create homogeneity. But I think in a theological sense, this is actually what Jesus is showing us. And what we experience is the text is that Jesus understands the otherness of people. And so a little bit of a confession here. 
Um, and you're going to join me in a second in this confession. You just don't know yet. I like people that remind me of me. Like, I, I'm just going to be honest. Like, I derive a great deal of comfort when I walk into a room and I find co- people that, um, whose opinions are very close to my own, their uh, background, their cultural come from, their ideas, their experiences, their, their education. Like, that's comfort, comfortable um, to me. And I know I'm not alone. So here's, what, here's how you can, do, uh, you can test this. And um, we'll just make fun of... Um, Maybe I shouldn't do this, but I'll do it anyway, and maybe I'll ask for forgiveness. But um, today when you take a walk, here's what you're going to find, okay? You, you don't judge them or try not to, but you're going to find three men walking out of an apartment today, all right? And they're going to be wearing pretty similar clothes. They're going to be wearing the same um, mesh workout shorts, the same poofy hair. They're going to have the uh, same um, sports betting app on their phone. Maybe they're going to be wearing the same shoes. They're going to go to a bagel shop, and they're probably going to order the same bagel, pretty similar at least. And um, you're going to look at them, and you're going to go, Russell was right. I, I found them today. What is it? It's friends that are seeking comfortability. Nothing wrong with this, right? Um, I, was, I was afraid that I was going to um, exploit some of you today uh, in, in, in doing this. And so uh, go with the frat bros. They're easier to uh, throw under the bus, I think. So what do we do? We seek homogeneity. It's just very natural to us, right? We seek friendships with people that are like us, the same people hanging out with the same people. And alterity says otherness. It may not be easy, but others have a great deal to teach us about life. Others have a great deal to teach us about ourselves. And what we find in the biblical narrative is that other people have a great deal to teach us about God. And this is so key. Maybe ask, why are you telling me about all this, Russell? Because at the heart of the biblical vision is it's teaching us how do we relate to and how do we love other people. And if we chase this idea down a little bit further, this idea of otherness, what we actually find is that God in the Scriptures always treats people as subjects and never objects, okay? We should always know other people as subjects and not objects. What do I mean? Life is fundamentally about relationships, and other people are subjects whom God loves. People are not objects for us to undermine, generalize, manage, or group together. Sorry, frat bros, I just did that to you. Much of modern marketing is actually based on this, te- this technique of objectification to accomplish its goals. So let me, just, let me just show you this so you can get a picture of what it looks like. Sorry if you're in marketing, um, but social media is designed to objectify and sell to you, okay? And so here's what the social media algorithm does, is it says, what is your relationship status? Like, who, who are you interacting with on the app? What uh, things are you searching? Then it takes your interests. What kind of engagements do you have on a certain post, and what kind of engagements do you make on other posts? How often are you on said app, right? All of it is creating a profile for you, stealing your browser history, objectifying you, and then what are they doing? Targeting with you with ads to sell you things. And does it work? It works, all right? This is the, this is the bad news, right? Application for today, get off social media. So the app, whatever it may, may be, is... Um, is embodying the culture. The app is embodying the culture, a culture of objectification. But let me tell you something about God. God looks at you and foundationally he sees worth. You're a subject and not an object. Created worthy in the Imago Dei, the image of God, regardless of race, class, and gender. Paul says this in um, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? It means we should never minimize, generalize, undermine, or stereotype because every single person that you interact with is rich with history, potential, strengths, weaknesses, all of it. And God calls us to treat people as subjects and not objects. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., an incredible sermon, uh, if you want to go read it, it's called The American Dream. In 1965, um, he was speaking about the uniqueness of humanity, the Imago Dei, and, and really what that looked like in his time, and this is what he said. Uh, the whole concept of the Imago Dei, as it expressed in Latin, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has the capacity to have fellowship with God, and this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity, and we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. Alterity, right? This begins to sort of undergird how we think and who we are. And I think the dangers of something like social media is that they steal your data and then they begin to create a profile and sell products to you. Or, or maybe uh, professionally, we do this, right? We, we look at other people, we objectify them. How can they help me step up in my career ladder? Or what, this is the danger, really the danger of pornography, is that it, it takes a person and it makes them a sexual object for us to exploit for our own pleasure. This is the danger of something like that. And so as we understand alterity, this idea of, of otherness, we realize that God treats us. And Jesus, who's walked around, he treated people as subjects to love, even when the culture at large would have looked at that woman and said, pagan, don't talk to her, unclean, not worthy. And so we're taking steps here. What this begins to show us is the, the great inclusivity of Jesus. And so here's what the text says in verse 26. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. All right, pretty intense, right? It kind of sounds like Jesus is calling this woman a dog, and actually he is couple things to understand here that makes it more intense and less intense, all right? Western societies love dogs, all right? Like, that's just facts. We love dogs. Um, I don't love dogs, but that's a whole other conversation we can talk about sometimes. Um, dogs in our culture are treated better than homeless individuals in our city. Like, that's, by and large, that's just true. But in the ancient world, dogs were scavengers, like wild and dirty. It was rare to have a pet in that way. And Jewish people in this time often called Gentiles dogs. It was an, it was an insult. And so Jesus is doubling down on that. And so Jesus, I don't want to lighten this too much because actually that's true. Though in the original language, Jesus um, uses a diminutive form of the word dog, meaning it's a lesser form. It's almost as if he's calling her a puppy, but he's still calling her a dog. And so both things are kind of true. It's like, very intense and less intense simultaneously. But what he's saying is, you're a mother. Like, you, you know how families eat, right? Children eat at the table. If scraps fall underneath, you can get them, right? And so he's not outright denying the woman's request to cast the demon from her daughter. He's just saying, there's an order. There's a plan. Like, the, the, there's an order in a system to the way which God has called me to accomplish his plan and his will. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 1. Hang with me here because we'll build on this here. 
He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so he's opening up the door of exclusivity, but he is saying that there is an order. And what this means is you can't read the Bible and take out the, the Jewish part of it. You can't, you can't read the Bible and take out the fact that Ju- Jesus was a Jewish rabbi who came and completely um, fulfilled the story of Israel. Jesus came into this context and he said, hey, there, there's a way, a system, and an order to what we're establishing, right? To the Jew first, then to the Gentile. I'm the Messiah and I'm opening up the door, but I have to complete the work and the story of Israel first. And guys, this woman is brilliant. This woman is brilliant. Look at what she says in verse 28. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This woman has some serious guts. But the amazing thing is, she doesn't argue with Jesus. Like, he has offended her. He has just called her a dog. And, and, he, and she, she's, she doesn't respond by saying, well, how dare you? Do you know who I am? Like, I'm so valuable. I deserve this. I have rights. She doesn't say any of these things. But rather what she does in this, this moment of brilliance is she enters into his parable. Jesus is telling a story. He's telling a parable. And, and, her, and, and her way of participating is, is she's to say, I understand your parable, and I'm going to enter into it. I'm going to use your language against you in my language. And in fact, this is a little cool feature here. She's one of the only people in all of the Bible to understand a parable. One of the only people. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And you know what she essentially says? Jesus, I know. I know Israel's first. I know I don't have the Bible. I know that I, I, I don't obey the Ten Commandments. I know that I'm not following you. I know that I'm considered unclean. I'm not saying for a second, Jesus, I'm a part of your covenant family, but I need your help because I'm a mom and my daughter is sick and she's overwhelmed and she can't fix herself. And in a moment of humility, what this woman is essentially saying is this, you can fix my daughter. I'm, the, I, I'm, at, the, I'm at the last I'm at the edge. I'm I'm at my wit's end. You're the only one that can fix my daughter. Cast this demon out. No pushback. No conversation about rights. No merits. Nothing. Just humble and confident that Jesus is the only one that can help fix her daughter. This is the gospel. Like, this is the gospel. This woman understands the gospel. Jesus, I'm not coming to you based on my goodness, based on my merits, based on anything that I can do. I'm approaching you based on your merits, based on your goodness. I'm not coming to you because I'm good, because I'm clean, because I've obeyed you, because I've done anything. I'm coming to you because you're good and you're powerful. And look what Jesus says in response. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus is like, I, I, I don't think I can get a better answer than that. Like, she, the demon's out of your daughter. You, you did it. This is so crazy. We, we, don't, we wouldn't think of this passage as um, particularly um, outstanding in the biblical narrative, but it actually is. Jesus moving into to Gentile territory, um, he's actually universalizing the concept of a Messiah. The Jewish people are the one waiting for a Messiah, and the door has now been opened in terms of geography, ethnicity, gender, and religion. And here's what Jesus is saying. Anyone who believes can come. Jesus is inclusive in this way. 
Anyone who believes can come. Uh, Thomas Merton is a, um, a mystic. He says this, Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business, and in fact, it's nobody's business. What we are asked to do is to love, and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbor worthy. And I just love that last phrase. God's love for us in Christ renders us worthy. And Jesus was radically inclusive in this way, flipping the script of who's in and who's out. And this is why, of course, so many people followed him, right? This is what, this is what garnered him this crazy life where he's always trying to escape from. But that's the inclusivity of Jesus. Here's the last part. It would be a mistake to leave here and not acknowledge the exclusivity of Jesus, right? We have to keep these two things, not even in tension, right? They're not in tension with one another. They're both just true. Jesus walked around telling people the truth about who they were. Uh, last week, I, uh, we kind of skipped over it, um, and so I wanted to come back to it. Last week, um, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about what defiles them, what, what, what's sinful, what makes them unclean. And uh, in chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus is like, I'm just going to list it out for you. This is what separates you from God. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. Right? To, um, some of you wish I would have just stopped. Right? Like, that, Russell, that was actually a great sermon right there. Like, that would have been a great end to today, right? Let's not talk about sin or unworthiness today. Maybe next week, all right? I'm out of town. It's 4th of July. Next week would have been better, right? Leave it there. Pray and go home, Russell. But I, wouldn't, I would be doing you a disservice because that is not the gospel. Leaving it there would not be the truth that Jesus did have an ethic. Jesus did have a standard. And not touching these things would be absurd. We're not reading the text fully if we're not willing to submit. And so Jesus, in a very striking way, says to this woman, actually, you're right, you're not worthy. You're falling short. But that's the whole point. She just joins in. She doesn't defend herself. She doesn't, she doesn't begin to say anything about her own worthiness or advocate herself. She just joins in, and it's almost as if she says, you're right, I'm not. Like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy, but guess what? I just want a crumb. Like, I just want a little bit. And Jesus repeatedly in the Gospels, he's saying, uh, anyone can come to me, but you can only come through me. Anyone can come to me, but you can only come through me. And a lot of people look at this and we say, well, you're crazy. That's exclusive. That's narrow-minded. That's arrogant. And I'll be honest with you today. That is exclusive, right? But exclusive is only a bad thing if it's, if it's not true. And so it's like this. Say you're really sick and you go to the doctor. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, good, good news and bad news for you. you we, have, there, we have a medication that can heal you. That's the good news. The bad news is, is there's only one. There's only one medicine. That medicine would be exclusive, right? It's, it's the only one that's going to work. But see, exclusive is only bad if at the same time it's not inclusive. That it's the only one, sure, but it doesn't help me if I don't have access to it, if it's not inclusive, right? And Jesus is coming along and, and, and making the claim. He's saying, anyone can come to me, anyone can follow me, but they have to go through me. I'm, I'm the way, the route to God available to everyone, and reconnection back to God, available to you, like available to you for your soul. And it goes through Jesus. 
And in all of chapter 7, if we just sort of uh, zoom out, it's not the, the Jews are in and the Gentiles are out or, or, or vice versa for that, for that matter. Chapter 7 says, the humble are in and the proud are out. Can you humble yourself? Can you acknowledge a differentiation between you and God? I love Brandon was talking about that this morning. I love this idea that do you understand you're not God, you can't save yourself, but that God is so perfect and holy and he's ready to accept us. But we have to, in humility, acknowledge who we are as well. And so have you been humbled? Do you believe the gospel? Have you placed your faith in Jesus and you're ready to approach God humbly? And I think what we realize on the back end of this is um, what a gift. What a gift, this whole gospel message as we take it in. A matter of, um, before I go into communion here, I want to kind of give us a pastoral word um, for what happened on Friday with Roe. Um, I know that um, all of you saw the news on Friday that Roe was overturned and that abortion is no longer federally protected, but now states determine um, what is legal. And in a church like ours, um, and I've always prayed and, and asked God, God, would you make us a diverse church? And then you realize, wow, that's actually a little bit harder. You have a diversity of perspectives and, and people. But um, reactions to this can range from celebration um, to anger. And then for some of us in the room, I want to acknowledge it's more personal, right? I, I'm not a woman. Um, I can't imagine the, the weight and the burden um, of, of carrying a child. I've watched my wife do it twice, and I'm just absolutely humbled and blown away. And so um, I want to acknowledge that. And um, also I want to say that I, um, as our church grows more diverse, that's what I long for, um, I hope that what that would mean in, in, in an act of alterity is that we would actually understand more perspectives. And by doing so, I think that we would have a fuller picture of God. But let me say a couple things here. God did not cease to be God when Roe was passed in 1973, and he did not cease to be God on Friday. All right? And I want to hold that up and say, um, I want to affirm that God cares, and he's very much in our midst, and we should seek the heart of God in this area. Abortion is a multifaceted and complex issue, and again, more personal for, for others than, than some others. Um, like we talked about today, we need to lean in with deep humility. I hope after today that we would have conversation, that um, after what I say, if you want to pray at the end, you want to ask questions, let's do that together as a community so that we can learn. And I also want to affirm that um, followers of Jesus believe what we just talked about um, in that Galatians 3 passage and Martin Luther King, that all people are made in the image of God, and we should take time to reflect and pray on how we value, nurture, and protect human life, whether it's in the womb, yes, or in our neighbor next door, or in a prison cell, or individuals in our city experiencing homelessness all of life. And we need to lean in and listen. Our our God is a boundary-crossing and border-crossing God, and we should be concerned with life at every level. We do not need to live in the false dichotomy that we choose between the side of women or the side of the unborn. We as a church want to see abortions decrease and lean in how to love and care for others and see healthy families form. Um, I really loved this, um, this tweet by a woman, um, a Dr. Christina Edmondson, um, who I've met before. is amazing. Um, and she said in the Old Testament, there's widows, orphans, and sojourners. Women, vulnerable women, orphans, vulnerable children, sojourners, vulnerable immigrants. And then she went on to say this, they must be the focus of Christian orthopraxis. When they are centered in our prayers, policies, and actions, everyone benefits. People can hide behind costless labels like pro-life that give the veneer of a moral high ground with zero sacrifices. We don't want to be that community. We want to be a community that joins in the conversation, that sacrifices where we can, pushes in, and leads with 
empathy. And so, word of grace, if this is a um, triggering for you or um, possibly a difficult time for someone you know or someone you love, um, I've been praying this week um, that you would be seen and heard today, that if you're experiencing guilt or carrying shame, whatever it may be, that you would receive prayer today. Um, whether it's over here at the end, if you want to fill out the connection card, please, please, please um, fill that out. We want to be a community that listens and loves one another in this way. All right? Let's pray. Complex times that we live in, God. Um, but nothing that you do not know, nothing that you cannot handle, nothing that you cannot accomplish And so uh, this was a journey today, thinking about who you are, how you care, the even the tension sometimes that we feel in our body as um, conversations like this come up. I pray, God, that you would um, give us the ability to rest, that we, weary as we may be, would rest fully in your good news, that we would know that um, the cultural cultural wars and the the uh, uh, they, they still come. And yet in the midst of it, you're still good. And so, God, would you meet us here by your grace? And maybe the best thing that we could do today um, is to receive your gospel and to be refreshed and renewed in communion. And so I pray that as we come to the table, Father, um, that by your grace you'd meet us here, just like this um, woman, that she knew she wasn't worthy, but she sought to gather crumbs up under your table. May this be um, an act of us seeking that um, today as we share this meal in communion. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.